Acts chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty, mighty rushing wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. And when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because every man heard them speak in, their, in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how we hear speak, and how hear we, every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and dwellers in Mesopotamia and Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, in Egypt, and in the parts of Libya around Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our, in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What means this? Others mocking, saying, These, are, these men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the leaven, lifting up his voice and said to them, You men of Judea and all ye that dwell, in Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And all my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord shall come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved by God among you, by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain him, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held of it. For David speaks... Concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he was at my right hand, and that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue be glad. Moreover also, my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you the, of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God 
has sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this, before he spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did seek corruption. This Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith unto himself, The Lord said, saith unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make my, thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made the same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now then, when they had heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and that same day were added unto them three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were, were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men, every man that had need. And they, accord, and they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and single, singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be in the Lord's house again today. Good to have the word open once again. We're going to be looking at the end of Acts chapter 2 today. We've been journeying through the first part of Acts. And today we arrive at the end of chapter 2. And we'll be looking verses 41 through 47 in our time this morning. As we begin, though, I'd like to read a a passage from Jeremiah, chapter 6. Thus says the Lord, which we read quite often, by the way, in the prophets. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths. Where the good way is. And walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said. We will not walk in it. Also I set watchmen over you. Saying listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said. We will not listen. 
We will not walk in it. We will not listen. Proverbs 19, verse 20. It says, listen to counsel. And receive instruction. Why? That you may be wise in your latter days. You know, there's, there's coming a day when your body's going to stop functioning. There's going to come a day. The breath you breathe right now will no longer be. And in preparation for your dying, listen to the counsel of the word. Receive the profitable instruction that it provides you. There is nothing greater than to get clear on your eternal state. And by the way, there is one book in the scriptures more that touch on it, but there's one book in particular that speaks to this, getting clear, being assured. If you have time this week, you can read the first epistle of John. That will give you that assurance. But you know, it's foolish to go through this life without listening to this word and receiving its instruction. Because we see here that this word has power to save your soul. Jesus said that you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. So, it's important for us to be obedient to the counsel and instruction of this word. To ask for the old paths where the way is good and walk in it. That's an important element there. Walking in it. Those old paths are wonderful. And you might look back and you might be able to see those old paths. You're asking for those old paths, but the idea is that we walk in them. We live them out. We're going to see a church today that does that very thing. They don't just talk about these good things. They walk them out. And in doing so, they please their Lord. Peter stood to speak on the day of Pentecost. Remember, he had something to say. He didn't just stand to start talking. He had something to say on that day, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And he answered the question in Acts 2 verse 12, right? Whatever could this mean? And his first go around with the answer was refuting the very answer that was given by the group in verse 13. Those who were mocking, who said they were full of new wine. Peter says, first of all, these men are not drunk as you suppose. Let's get clear. These men are not drunk on wine. And then in verses 16 through 36... He explains to them what this does mean. Principle here. There's a good principle right here. Don't just tell somebody what not to do. Let's give them the truth of what they are to be doing. It's easy even, is it it not, as a parent? Don't do that. 
Don't, don't do that. But yet perhaps we don't instruct them on what to do. That's a great principle, just in and of itself right there. So Peter says, here's what this is not. And then he says, here's what this is. And remember, he gives to them two primary explanations. First explanation found in verses 16 through 21. He points them to the prophecy of Joel. Showing them that the very thing they're hearing is a result of what had been prophesied. Joel spoke of this very thing happening. And then in verses 22 through 36, he starts with Jesus of Nazareth, remember? And he explains to the multitude how to understand their current confusion. And being filled with the Holy Spirit, remember Peter was compelled, now at this point, to preach Christ. And that's what he does. He preaches the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. And then he ties it up in verse 33 of Acts 2. He says, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God. That's the ascension. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this what you now see and hear. You see, sharing the good news of Jesus... When we talk about Jesus, Jesus always takes confusion and provides hope, doesn't he? Remember the, the chaos at sea? They were pretty unsettled on the sea, weren't they? And all it took was Jesus simply saying, peace, be still. See, when we talk about Jesus and we teach Jesus and we share the good news of Jesus, that provides peace in the midst of chaos. And people who don't have Christ in their life don't know what that peace is. But if you're here this morning and you don't have that peace of Christ, let me assure you, that peace of Christ can be yours. Can be. So the people heard what Peter had to say. And the text says they were cut to the heart. And then remember they asked another question. Different from the one in verse 12. The question they ask is, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? And you know, I got to thinking, asking the question, thinking from an application standpoint for just a moment, has the word of God ever broken you? I, I see the response here in verse 37. They're broken. What shall we do? They realize the depth of their sin at this point. They realize what their sin has done. They realize what's happened to Jesus. And their part in that. And have you ever reached the point, this group right here, in 37, of submitting your will to the Lord's will? Have you ever desired what the Lord wants for your life? Or have you been so busy trying to accomplish your own things 
that you've missed what the Lord desires for your life. You see, the multitude here is cut to the heart over the word preached, the word that penetrated their heart. The word pierced them deeply on this day. And the result is this, church. The result is surrender. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter then instructs them what to do. What they're to do coincides with what God is doing in them. Remember that being saved is a work of God, and God is the one who opens blind eyes, opens deaf ears. God's the one that does that work. Notice, too, that what they're to do first is connected to the very thing that separates them from God. Repent! That's the first thing Peter says. Repent of what? Maybe we've just skimmed over this verse. Peter's crowd, I believe, would have understood this. Perhaps the multitude gathered in 2012 needs to be reminded of this, that when, when repentance is put forward, it assumes something. It assumes sin. Sin. Okay, so this repentance, it's it's not simply a a formality, an intellectual exercise to check the box of following Jesus. Repent implies turning away. It implies this, hating. By the way, we don't use that word in our family, hating, hate. In this context, I'm going to use it because this is what God thinks about it. He hates it. And we ought to hate it too. Hate it and forsake it. Knowing what? Knowing that it is displeasing to God. It's not simply, I'm sorry. But I repent. I no longer desire to sin, realizing that I've been an offense to you, Lord. Isn't that what David says in Psalm 51? To you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. David understood where to take his sin. You know, there's a song, a chorus. It says, please forgive me. I need your grace to make it through. All I have is you. I'm at your mercy. Lord, I'll serve you till my dying day and help others find the way at your mercy. Please forgive me. And praise the Lord. He promises that very forgiveness right here in the Word. The psalmist in Psalm 73 25, 26, verse 28. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail. But God. Another one of those familiar but God phrases in the scripture. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It is good for me to draw near to God I have put my trust in the Lord God. Why? That I may declare your works. And Peter does just this. If you look at verse 40. With many other words. He testified and exhorted them saying. Be saved from this perverse generation. You know I was studying this again this past week. And missed this last week. 
Yeah, maybe you could say the Lord just gave it to me this week and didn't give it to me last week. I don't know. But I missed it. I was reading it, and, I, and this, I'd stop. Verse 40. And I told my wife, I said, I missed this last week. This is important. And I believe it's important tied into the context today where we're going. But Peter testified and exhorted the multitude. Question, do you think Peter had anything to testify about? If we know anything about Peter's life, and we know the context right here, he's now filled with the Holy Spirit. He's preaching and teaching the things of Christ. Do you think he had perhaps anything to testify about? Well, I was thinking about a few things in his life. And I was thinking about some times in his life. You know, when we think about testifying, giving testimony, testimony is not simply about all the good things God has done for us. No doubt that's part of it. But that testimony also is pointing to those times in our life when we didn't get it. Those times when sin entangled us, ensnared us. And on the other end of that, we point to what God did to free us from the entanglement of sin. Well... How about the denial of Jesus? That's one that would come to most of your minds. Or remember the scene, you have little faith. Why do you doubt? Or how about this one? Get behind me, Satan. Remember that? Or the scene right there in the garden right before Jesus is getting arrested and he cuts off Malchus's ear. After all that Jesus has talked about in John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, they, they, they get to, Jesus gets done debriefing them about what's going to happen, who's going to be coming, and then he goes and whacks this guy's ear off. Now those are some things that I would look at in Peter's life, and no doubt we could look in our own lives. People could point to these things in our own lives. Some areas where we really missed the boat. Some areas where we sinned. We dropped the ball. We didn't get it. We didn't make the right decision. But on the other end of that, I believe Peter could testify to what the Lord did in his life. Those words of Jesus from Luke 22, I'm sure were precious to Peter. I've prayed for you, Simon. Satan desires to sift you as wheat. He says, after you've returned, strengthen the brethren. Or the time in John 21 when Christ restores Peter? Three times. Or the time even here recently in Acts 1 where Peter could testify, you know what? I've learned that my actions are to be shaped by the word of God. Remember, he stands up and he points the church, the new community, to this is why we're going to replace Judas with either Matthias or, or this other guy, Justice, Barnabas. This is why we're going to do this. We're going to take action because this is what the word of God says. And I believe Peter was learning this. Or what about the time in Luke 5 when, when Peter was in the boat with the other fishermen? And, you know, I, you know what? I've, I've been out all night. I've been trying to catch these fish. And okay, Lord, at your word, I will obey. And there are boatloads of fish. Peter's humbled drops to his knees. You see, I think there are times in Peter's life, well, while he sinned, there were also times when in Peter's life we can see from the written record of the scripture 
Peter's life was transformed by the encounter of Jesus Christ. And so when the text says in verse 40, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them. You see, when you've got a story to tell about the good news of Jesus, a follow-up to that is some exhortation. Because you see, you've been where they are. You've been there. You're not bonking them on the head. You're saying, hey, you know what? Here's what happened to me. Here's what I did. Here's what I went through. But let me tell you what the Lord did in my life. Let me tell you how he healed this. Let me tell you how he separated me. He sanctified me from this sin that I was once stuck in. And you begin calling them to call upon the name of the Lord. As Peter says here, be saved. He pleads with them, exhorts them. Be saved from this perverse generation. So church, I believe there's a lesson here. You know, asking the question, you know, what, what is your testimony? Testimony and exhortation, let's make sure they are attached to what the word of God says. Speaking to, here's what the word of God has done in my life. You see, there are people who want to see the word of God translated in the way you live your life. That's what we're going to see in, at the end of Acts. You're going to see that the Lord adds to the church daily, not because someone necessarily was standing to preach a message. No, that may have happened over the course of days. But primarily what you're seeing in here at the end of Acts is the Lord is adding to the church daily as a result of lives who are willing not just to observe, oh, look at those old paths. Aren't they wonderful? No, they want to walk in those old paths. So, Acts 2.41, those who gladly received his word were baptized. Can you imagine the baptism service they had? I mean, they just all went down, 3,000 of them. And people ask, well, how could you get them all done? You know what? If you're going to go that route, you're not walking. The text says that that day, about 3,000. That's good enough for me. How it happened, I don't know. I don't know. By faith, I take it, it did happen, though. 3,000 souls added that day. God's results, when God's word is preached, he adds to his church, right? One writer says, and this is good, he says, he did not add them to the church, listen to this, without saving them. In other words, no nominal Christianity at the beginning. Nor did he save them without adding them to the church. No solitary Christianity either. You see, when you're saved, you don't just start flying around operating on your own. You're not, you're not isolated. You're not just your own individual self. No, you are a part of the body of Christ. That's important. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to the 120 mentioned in Acts 1.15. And then I got to thinking about this. And, and, and they, they, went from, they went from a relatively small church, 
right? To what today we would call a mega church. And, and just throwing out that term, your, your defenses, many of you go right up, right? I know, you don't have to pull anything. I understand. A mega church. Immediately it's like, oh. If, if that's the way you feel about a mega church, all I want to do is remind you what this word says. There were 3,120 that I know of in the beginning of this. By, by today's standards, that's a mega church. That's big. And if you keep reading here in the next couple chapters, we're going to see these summary statements inserted by Luke as he's moved by the Holy Spirit. We're going to see the church is going to keep growing. It's going to get big. Real big. See, it got large because of what God did. Because his word accomplished his purposes and because the Holy Spirit worked in and through that active word. The church grew in response to obedient, surrendered vessels willing to carry out the purposes of the Lord. Anything wrong or or bad or evil about that? That's how the church grew. Now perhaps there's a stigma attached to a large church today because you've heard of all these wonderful church growth ideas. But let's be clear. Please do not for one moment today immediately associate a mega church with, oh, it must be bad. It must be doing wrong things. It must be... Because this church right here in Acts 2 was large. Let's remember that. Let's just remember that as foundation for where we're going this morning. Verse 42 says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, right here, this is where we're going to be. We're going to expand off of 42. We're going to be here a large portion of the day. It records the pattern of the early church. As the Lord added 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, there was work for them to do. They were all collectively to serve as witnesses to Jesus, right? Acts 1.8 says that. With the given power. Power. Wait wait in Jerusalem until you get the power. That's the word, right? Acts chapter 1. So, here's a a great way, great handle to remember. We can just summarize Acts 1 and 2. Here it is. Ready? All right, they start out in Acts 1. They waited for the power to be poured out. That's Acts 1, waiting. They were waiting for the power to be poured out. At the beginning of Acts 2, the power is poured out in the person of the Holy Spirit, okay? The next section of text, 5 through 13, immediately following, there is a question about the power. It's been poured out. And then following that, there's an explanation given by Peter an explanation to the power that's been poured out. And now in today's text, that same power gets exercised. How many of you like to exercise? I can tell some of you really didn't mean that when you raised your hand. 
exercise. Moving our body, right? Getting that heart pumping, exercising, riding a bike, running, jogging, lifting, playing a, some kind of sport just to get some exercise. Well, we have an idea, I believe, and we have a picture of what exercising is physically. But perhaps we've missed the idea of exercising when it comes to our faith. It's not just about what we know. What we know is very important. What we believe is very important. But we must not, cannot stop right there. We must walk it out. So, power has been waited on, poured out, questioned, explained, and now it is being exercised by the church. There's your summary for Acts 1 and 2. Okay? The power of the Holy Spirit provides direction, purpose to what the church is doing. The power of the Holy Spirit infuses life where there once was none. The power of the Holy Spirit establishes the fuel for what the church would prioritize in their times together. Worshiping collectively as a body, as families, and as individuals. You see, these layers are connected one to another. Individuals, families, churches. They're connected. Does the Holy Spirit simply provide direction and purpose for the church? Does he not also provide direction and purpose for those in your household? You see, we've got to remember, church is not a building, right? It, it, we need to be reminded of that. Sometimes we say we're going to church. Like as those, the building is the church. No, we need to be reminded that it's, it's the people. It's the people. Okay? And this, this, this trickles down the church made up of families, made up of individuals. See, the question, too, that we need to look at, does not the Holy Spirit also provide you as an individual with power to guide you toward Christ's purposes? Please do not see the pattern of the early church as a template for what God wanted to do once upon a time. Those once upon a time stories are sometimes wonderful stories to read. But this is no fantastical, imaginative, oh, wow. No, this is here that we might see what they did, how they went about it, and then so that we might walk in it. Not just look at it and admire it and go, yeah, well, but they had so many other things that we don't have today that weren't distracting. You come up with all kinds of things as excuses. This is what they did. This is instructive for right now. We too live in the era where the Holy Spirit is at work. He's moving. He's been poured out. Power from on high is available to you, to your children, to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Praise the Lord. That's good news. So, based upon what the Word says, how might you describe this church right here in the Scripture? What does God call His church to according to this verse in Acts 2.42? Well, let's look at the priority given in this early church. First of all, we see that this church was a disciple-making church. This church was a disciple-making church. And they continued steadfastly 
in the apostles' doctrine. By the way, for you young people, that word doctrine may be kind of a fuzzy word. Let's just insert teaching, all right? Teaching, that may be a word you're more familiar with. The apostles' teaching, okay? So what is the apostles' doctrine or the apostles' teaching? Why, why such a label? The, 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 the apostles, this is important, the apostles had taken the very doctrine of Christ, which we could even back that up further based upon John chapter 7, verses 15 through 18, I love that passage of scripture. Who, who is this man, they say. He's, he's, we know who this guy is. He's never studied. Yeah, I, he doesn't have a PhD behind his name. And Jesus says, essentially, this doctrine is not mine, but it's coming directly from the one who sent me. In other words, we can trace the doctrine of Christ back to the Father. Because all that Jesus taught, was it not given to him by the Father? Right? So, we can trace it back. These apostles, we need to understand, they were around Jesus for some two and a half, three years, right? They heard him teach. They they heard him preach. They saw his life. And so, I tend to believe the apostles' doctrine, the label here, they, they, and this is wonderful, you know that we would do this today. They essentially took on the idea of Christ and, and so much so that they embraced it so much so that they called it their own. This was, the, this was now the apostles' doctrine. Wouldn't it be great if our lives were lived in such a way that, that the things that we did, things we thought about, were so conform, they were so conformed to Christ and to his pattern and way of doing things, that that's just what we know. That's just what we do. Well, that's the way this teaching was, you see, because the apostles' doctrine is not, let's be clear, the apostles' doctrine was not something they themselves manufactured. They didn't write some separate book, some separate ideas, some separate thoughts and go, you know what, we better put these down in writing. Let's call them the apostles' doctrine. No, the apostles' doctrine, teaching, was the very thing that they learned themselves from Christ. Remember what Jesus said? He said this very thing was going to happen. Luke chapter 5, drop your nets. You've been fishermen, you've been catching fish. Follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. I'm going to show you how to catch men. I'm going to show you how to disciple men. And his church is about that very same thing. Disciple making. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on what? The apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Let's not forget who's the chief cornerstone. Apostles and prophets, but Jesus Christ, chief cornerstone. So, why would the church continue steadfastly? Why would the church, some of your translations say devoted. Why would the church be devoted to the apostles' doctrine? Why is that so important? Well, first of all, I believe Jesus himself called them to the task. If you look at Matthew chapter 28, at the end of Matthew's gospel, passage that I'm sure you've heard, read before. 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And here it is, verse 20. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus speaks of disciple making and commands them to teach. Teach them all things that I have commanded you. This teaching and preaching would be an integral part of what it meant for the church to make disciples. So why the apostles teaching? First of all, Jesus commands it. He tells them, this is what you need to be doing. But secondly, we need to understand that the word that we have before us, this word is truth. Okay, so John 17, 17 tells us that. Jesus is praying to the Father and he said, sanctify them by your word. And he says, your word is truth. So the apostles' doctrine, it points to the Christ found in this word, church. Okay? And so Jesus prayed that those who would follow after him would be set apart by this word. This word, contrary to other words out there, this word is truth. Now, we could preach a whole message on what that is because there are a lot of people today who don't believe there is a truth, right? They like to insert their own ideas and opinions for what they believe truth to be. This is the truth, and the apostles' doctrine would be significant in the life of the church because it stands in contrast to the life of the world. There's something different about it. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the what? Truth. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. John 3, 33, John the Baptist he who has received his, that's Christ, he who has received Christ's testimony has certified that God is true. Or, or John 14, 6, familiar? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the truth. The apostles' doctrine was significant because it taught truth. And in the process, what did it do? It exposed falsehood. You see, this word of truth shines light and at the same time, it exposes darkness. John chapter 3 talks about that. People don't want to come into the light because what does it do? It exposes their deeds of darkness. That's what the word does. The word is like a sword, isn't it? The word judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart, doesn't it? Hebrews speaks to that. So, this word that we have, this apostle's doctrine, this provides God's way in contrast to the world's way. So, thus says the Lord is the way that the church is called to walk. So, here, here, here's, here's why this plays out in your life. When you are confronted with what to do, have you considered what the Lord has to say on the matter? Before you start going, moving, have you considered and taken counsel with what the Lord has to say about this? And you're saying, well, he doesn't, 
he doesn't have any specifics about this particular thing I'm going through. Well, you know what? He may not have a specific about what you're going through, but I guarantee you there's some kind of pattern, there's some kind of precept, there's some kind of principle in here that's going to give you insight into where you are. There's not anything going on in your life this word doesn't speak to, church. Don't, don't for a moment think, think like, was it Elijah, right? Oh, woe is me. I'm the only one left. And he said, no, you're not. Some of you this morning might be thinking, oh, I'm the only one feeling this way. I'm the only one going through this. No. If that's the way you're feeling, you need to look at the word, and this word will, 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 will exhort you. Be, be, just beware. I'll, I'll put a beware, right? You see the sign of the dog in the front yard? I'll put a beware as you read the word because it's going to exhort you. It's going to, it's going to cut, right? It's going to be sharp. You're probably not going to like what it has to say on some occasions about your sin. But you see, that's one of the things that's profitable about this word. The word says it's profitable for rebuke. So we need to grow up. We need to mature a little bit. We need to take the word and we need to be rebuked a little bit. But praise the Lord, he doesn't just rebuke us, he corrects us. And he instructs us in righteousness. Okay? So that's what we need to do. That's what we need to do. When you find yourself at that crossroads in your life open the word see what the lord has to say about this. this is the word of truth why else do we need this apostles doctrine this is important as well because what you believe what you believe translates into your behavior i mean all of you have examples of this i'm sure especially parents parents i'm sure if we went down the road could recount situations at home based upon what you believe, right? Things you've seen. Go and see the behavior. Sometimes when you see the behavior, it, it also speaks to what they believe, doesn't it? <laughs> huh? You see that in the book of Romans, right? The first 11 chapters, speaking heavily upon what we believe. The last few chapters on how do we walk this out? Ephesians, one, two, and three. What we believe, how do we walk this out? See, the apostles' doctrine would would shape the lives of those in the church, transforming behavior in such a way that Christ gets seen by the world. And what you believe is significant. Your behavior flows out of what you believe to be true. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law as as a whole did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They didn't believe He was the Messiah prophesied about. And their behavior went along with their belief to the point of handing Him over to the Gentiles where He would be crucified on the cross. And conversely, we see the disciples who followed Jesus. Once Jesus was raised from the dead, they took what they believed about Jesus, what Jesus had taught them, and boldly behaved in the name of Christ because they couldn't help speaking about the things they'd seen and heard. What do you believe? What do you believe? Do you just simply believe in God? We know the book in, in, in James is right. We're, we're learning this one. Somebody has this verse. Even the demons believe, right? What do you believe? 
Does your behavior go before you as a man or woman of God? Does what you believe serve as a blockade in any way of your Christ-like witness? In other words, are you so rigid on what you believe to the nth degree? Let's go all the way out there and I'm going to stick to this all the way out here to the farthest limb on the tree. Is it so rigid that your behavior is unbecoming of a saint, of a believer in the Lord? Does your belief coincide with this word of truth? If so, does your behavior reflect such a belief? Does your tongue say yes to the truth of the word and yet your life operationally say no, no way? No, what is this? No. I'll get to it on Sunday. Is there some disjointedness there about what God's word says and what you believe? Are you holding on to something perhaps that God would say, get rid of that. That idea that you have, get rid of it. That's not of me. Have you held banners of belief unnecessarily to the detriment of your own relationship with the Lord and to the detriment of Christ's church, perhaps? So this apostle's doctrine, very significant, very important. First one listed here, Acts 2.42. How else is this church described? Well, we see this church was a loving and caring church. Right? They, they continue, continually steadfast, steadfast in Fellowship, okay? Fellowship. The word has in mind that which we have in common, a sharing together, a participation with one another. It's the word that, if you don't know any Greek, you probably know this word, koinonia, right? You've heard this word, right? What we have in common. Well, then we need to ask the question. Once we understand what it is, then we need to ask the question. Maybe make the statement first, the statement being that if that is what we're talking about, what we have in common, ask it, what do we have in common? First and foremost, what do we have in common? I hope we could say Christ. Christ. We have the Father and we have the Spirit. We have the Trinity aspect. We have, we have that in common. But Christ at the central, right? Christ. We have Christ in common. By the way, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 tells us a few other things we have in common. But since this is the tie that binds the brethren together, it's intended to be central in our times together. Look at verses 44 through 47. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. You've seen these words, together, in common. And sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord, with one accord, with one mind, in the temple... And breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Simplicity of heart. I love that phrase. Simplicity of heart. They didn't have all kinds of junk in their lives. They didn't have this wheelbarrow. I like the image of of the wheelbarrow going up the hill. 
And, you know, in our life, we have this wheelbarrow and we take it up the hill, right? And, and, and the Lord's given us certain, certain stones to carry up the hill in this life that we live. But oftentimes, we tend to just stop and pick up these other stones and put them in the wheelbarrow. And we start, we just want to carry them. And it gets harder and it's harder and it's harder and it's harder. And all the while, the Lord's saying, yeah, I didn't ever give you those stones. Why are you carrying those stones? It's simplicity of heart. That's the church. They were doing these things with joy. Just a simpleness about it. They didn't have a lot of other distractions. Let me say it this way. They didn't allow other distractions to take priority over their fellowship, over their being together, over what it meant for them to be a part of the body of Christ. Praising God, that is a worshiping bunch, and having favor, grace, charis, with all the people, with all the people. I, I like that too, that's simple, but I like it. They didn't have their select few people that they liked to hang around with. They enjoyed the favor of all the people. You see the picture here? Their lives intersected with one another. They seemed to enjoy being with each other. Here's a question for you. It's a hard one. I'm not going to have you stand and raise your hand and give an answer. But you need to answer it in your heart. Do you enjoy being around the people in this church? Do you enjoy the people in this church? I want you to ask yourself that question. If that's true. If it's not, I want you then to evaluate why it's not true. It probably has more to do with you and your sinful heart than it does with the other person down the road. This fellowship is, is such an important, important aspect to the life of the church. By the way, fellowship... We said, primarily, we're talking about believers, right? Those who share Christ. That's what we have primarily in common is Christ. And so if we primarily share Christ and we share his word that we've been given, when we come together, ought not Christ be central in those times together? Why is it? Why is it that Christ is so often absent when brothers and sisters get together? I mean, just in terms of what we do, and, and guys, you know, two guys might talk about their work and this and that, and that's fine, nothing wrong with talking about your work. But how can you guys talk about your work in the context of, here's what the Lord's doing. Man, I tell you, would you pray for me in this? And see how the conversation changes from talking about just simply workplace matters or talking about the weather. As good as that is, because no doubt we need the rain. Lord knows that. But how can we give God glory in that conversation? You see, that ought to be what we talk about the most. That ought to be what's in our heart, what's in our mind, because we're thinking about things not on earth. We're, we're citizens of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, our times of fellowship ought to center around the one that's brought us together. Psalm 78 talks about declaring the wonderful works of God. 
to the next generation. Talking to them about it. See, the life of the church was prioritized. Fellowshipping with one another was exciting. It was exciting. Sharing Christ, the love of Christ with those in the church. It was not burdensome, but it was deemed a delight. They met needs as they came. By the way, let's just blow this one out of the water in case any of you are thinking this. Well, they had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods. This was no communistic society. Let's just get clear on that. This was not a communistic society. This is an example of, from time to time, people had needs. Just like in the church today, some of you have needs. Some of you have been beneficiaries of the church coming alongside, helping in some way, shape, or form. This was not, once you became a part of the church, okay, everything you have, dump it into the pool. Let's be clear. Let's also see, though, the sacrifices that were made. The text says they sold, they sold some of their properties so that they could provide for someone who did lack. Responsibility, being a part of the body. No one had to tell them to do this. This is what they did. They saw the need. Maybe the question then this morning, do I know of needs in the body? Or am I always one of the last ones to find out about the needs in the body? And when I find out about a need in the body, what's my response to that? Oh, someone else will take care of it? Or how can I minister and serve and take care of it? How can I pray about this? Maybe I can just write a little note of encouragement. Some of you are very good at that. And that makes a big difference. Letting people know you care. Letting people know you know what's going on in their life. Asking them, how can I pray for you right now? In this Acts 2 church, if there was a need, some of them would literally sell their possessions. Later on, we get the idea they placed the money at the apostles' feet and the apostles would distribute as needed to those who were in need. They took care of one another. They ate together. They exhorted one another. They sharpened one another, no doubt. They used their homes. This is good. They used their homes as ministry tools to gather together in the name of the Lord. When someone comes into your home, I'm smiling right now because I don't have a home. When someone comes into your home, do they see a performance or a pattern? In other words, do you feel obligated to do something spiritual, like read the word or pray? And by the way, if you at least feel obligated, you're ahead of someone who doesn't even think about it. Or is there a genuine joy in the privilege and opportunity to worship with other brothers and sisters? Is your fellowship rooted in Christ and in the things of Christ? When someone comes into your home, does the word have a place? Is Christ exalted as Lord in your home? This church, they were going from house to house, eating, fellowshipping. You know, it doesn't say they were smiling. It says they were glad, right? Gladness. I, I, I just, 
Everybody's smiling. Everybody's excited. Everybody likes to be around each other. It's a great place to be. This is the life. So what's happened? You know, here at Hope in Christ, we have opportunity each week to fellowship. And here's a question. How do you spend the time you have with brothers and sisters in the Lord? What do you talk about? Is your heart knit together with the other parts of this body? Do you know the names of everyone here? I'll make it easier for you. Do you know the names of the person in your row? I mean, let's just start real simple. Let's, let's start with trying to know the names of the people. There's three, three layers I, I like to think of in, in the body. Knowing the names of the people. Knowing the needs of the people. Knowing the hearts of the people. And that all doesn't come overnight. But that ought to be our objective. Ought to be our objective. That early church had over 3,000 people. There were a lot of homes to meet in, a lot of people to know. So collectively, are you committed to building up one another, walking alongside one another, ministering to one another? A loving and caring church is described right here in Acts chapter 2. And in just a few verses, you catch a glimpse of what this church did, right? Here in these few verses. It's a wonderful picture. The impact that the Holy Spirit had on such a group. All right, so let's look at the third one. This church was a remembering church. A remembering church that continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread. Some are torn here as to whether this is a reference to eating or specifically to the Lord's Supper. I tend to believe that it is referring to the Lord's Supper for for three particular reasons. One, context points towards something the church did together regularly. Okay? Okay? And we see, no doubt, later on in the text that they ate regularly in the houses. But they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. These four things manifested themselves in the life of this church. And, and so, the one, one of the ways that they participated in the life of the church was the Lord's Supper. From a grammatical standpoint, there's a there's a definite article here. The, right, that appears before the noun in the original text. The breaking of bread, as though referencing a particular breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. This, this is not just any breaking of bread here. In fact, if you read the breaking of bread a little bit later in verse 46, I believe it is, it does not have that definite article. Speaking of they were in the homes and they were eating together. But I think also another reason is that Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, not simply just a gathering together for food, for the church, called them to remember what he was about to do for them at the cross. Do this in remembrance of me. And you see, in just a bit, we're going to have the cup and the bread, they're going to be distributed to the church. We participate in the Lord's Supper together as a means of remembering what Jesus did at the cross. And so, what did he do at the cross? What difference does the cross make, church? 
Paul, as he's speaking to that group of Ephesian elders, Miletus in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, says, Therefore take heed to yourself and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd, here it is, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That would be through his son, Jesus. Remember the hymn, The Church's One Foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. And for her life he died. Isn't the message of the cross the power of God to those who are being saved? Paul writes in Corinthians chapter 1, 18. This message of the cross then ought not get old. If you've been saved by grace through faith, you can't help but remember the cross of Christ. Each week we partake. Let us not get dull in our participation together of the bread and drinking the cup. For it is a reminder of our salvation. Every week we partake. We partake together. We do this as a body, a local assembly. And church, this ought to remind you every week about the grace of God in your life saving you. Remember the chorus. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. It's hard to just say those words without singing them. One day he's coming, oh glorious day. Which points to This church that's continuing steadfastly in the breaking of bread is also mindful not only of what Jesus did at the cross, what he secured for you at the cross, but it's pointing to a time yet to come, that day to come. Corinthians 11, 26, for as often as you eat the bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, how long? Till he comes. We need to be a remembering church. We need to remember what his death did and what it secured for us. But we also remember because we also desire to look ahead to what's yet to come. The early church is a remembering church pointing one another toward the cross of their Lord and Savior. Pointing one another to the salvation afforded them through that cross and pointing them toward the day of his return. So why continue steadfastly in the Lord's Supper? Well, this do in remembrance of me, Jesus says. We partake looking forward to the blessed hope and that glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? Titus says that. So what else, according to the text, did the church continue in? The last thing in the list in verse 42, they were a praying church. This church was a praying church. They continued steadfastly in in prayers, or in literally the prayers, in the prayers. Now this ought not come as a surprise. Acts 1.14 mentions that the church gathered together in the upper room to pray while they were waiting. Acts 1.24 and 25 mentions that the church prayed, asking of God to select the replacement for Judas Iscariot. And as you continue reading through the book of Acts, you see testimony of prayer 
among the church. Prayer that changed lives. Prayer that availed much. Prayer that came from a heart inclined to the Lord. Prayer fueled by the filling of the Holy Spirit. You see, continuing steadfastly in prayers is significant to the life of the church. For it serves as ongoing communication with the one whom they serve. Remember the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless shame we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And I want you to notice something about what happened in this early church. Right after verse 42, we get verse 43. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. You see, the apostles were the ones the Lord had designated and authenticated carrying out his word. So these miracles and signs, they were done through the apostles. But it says fear came upon every soul. Every soul. Why? You see, every soul seems to imply both Christ followers and those who were not yet following Christ. What would cause fear to come upon every soul at this time? Well, for those following Christ, there was a recognition, I believe, of what it looked like to be a new creation. The old had gone, the new had come, the Holy Spirit poured out, brought them together like never before. The witness and the testimony among the community of believers was contagious. Everybody was talking about Jesus these days. The fear was awe. And reverence over what God had done in them. The fear of the Lord was truly the beginning of wisdom for this group of people. For those who were not following Christ at this time, the people saw this new community under authority. They saw them submitted to this apostle's doctrine as a way of life. They saw loving. They saw caring. They saw sharing like never before. They saw a church that took seriously what they believed. They saw belief and behavior lining up. They saw this community of believers in prayer and worship, both in the temple and going from house to house. It was attractive. It was hard to miss out on what this church was doing. Fear came upon every soul. You see, the Holy Spirit church was mightily at work convicting their souls, of their need for Jesus. Convicting them, perhaps, of judgment to come. John 17, 20 and 21, Jesus' prayer to the Father. He says, I do not pray for these alone, talking about his own followers, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Why? That they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. That's so important, church. We get this. The idea here, Jesus, he's praying for those who would believe in him, that they would exhibit a oneness, a unity factor. Why? That the world may believe the truth regarding Jesus as God's son. When we are operating and working together as one, the world sees that. That's the witness, that's the testimony collectively as a body. The world sees that. 
and the Holy Spirit will do what the Holy Spirit's going to do, and that's convict the world of sin. And that's how the Lord adds daily to his church. You know, I get the impression that fear came upon every soul in light of the church walking together in unity, devoting themselves to disciple-making, loving and caring for one another, constantly talking about the means of their salvation through the cross of Christ, prayers in the temple, prayers in the home. Word got out about those churched people. Something has grabbed a hold of these people. They're, they're living like this stuff's really true. So what about us today? Are we living like this is true? Are we behaving as though we believe this is true? What, what keeps the church today from living like this? What might happen if hope in Christ caught a glimpse of this particular kind of living? I want you to think about the picture here in the text. A church of 3,000 plus new creations in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit power, set free now to witness and testify to Christ. Do you think this kind of living would leave a mark? I do. Here's the thing. We don't have to have 3,120 to start doing the work. We've got, I don't know, 75 to 100 here today. I believe he's called us to be about the work. Stop gazing into the heavens, right? Those men in white told them in Acts 1. In other words, let's get going. Let's get busy. Let's be about the work he's called us to do. Acts 2.42 is a summary statement of how the church operated. They intended... These four things, these four things in, in the text, they, not only did they tend to them, they devoted themselves, they continued steadfastly in these things. The point here, I believe, here, here's the point. It's not that they simply did these four things. Let's be clear on this. I believe this speaks to the heart behind doing these four things. It's not simply they checked the box, did these things. It was the heart behind these four things. They genuinely loved the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They genuinely loved their neighbor from their heart. There's a joy unspeakable present right here in the text. And when you look at the end of Acts 2.47, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Back, this is good. Acts 2.41. 3,000 received the word, were baptized, added to the church. As a result of God's word preached, God brought in his intended harvest of souls. Here in Acts 2.47, the emphasis is upon the church doing, the church working together, the church continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. Verses 43 to 47 fill in the gaps a bit on how they lived out verse 42. And then you read, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. One writer says, just as their worship was daily, so was their witness. And as a result, the Lord 
adds daily. In the midst of their formal worship in the temple, in their gatherings from house to house, the Lord desires to add to His church daily. Not simply on Sundays, not simply following an invitation to a message. He desires to draw men unto Himself through the obedient life and faithful witness and word of His church. That's the people. That's you. That's me. And as a part of Christ's church, you are commissioned with the work of witnessing to Jesus, not simply with your mouth, but also with your life and conduct. Today and tomorrow and the day after that, let your light so shine before men that they may see your Father. Point them to the Lord. That they may praise the Father because of the good deeds they see in you. Church, it's time to, as a song, we're going to sing here in just a moment, O Church, Arise. And it's time for the church to arise. I believe, you know what, as we look out and we see some things, I believe there are some good things happening today. I believe there's some good things happening in this body. I praise the Lord for some good things happening in this body. There's work still needs to be done, though. Amen? Work still needs to be done. And as a part of the body, we have work to do as long as the Lord leaves us here. We don't get to or arrive at an age where we say, oh, I've been there, I've done that, it's someone else's turn. No. If you're a part of the body of Christ, you have work to do until the Lord calls you home. Let's be about that work. So, Spirit, come. And these words say these very things. Spirit, come. Put strength in every stride. Give grace for every hurdle. Church, there are going to be hurdles we're going to jump over. There's hurdles we've already jumped over. There's hurdles in your life, in your family's life, you've already jumped over. Asking God to give grace for every hurdle. Every single one of those hurdles you jump, even in your own individual life, you're going to go through some things if you haven't already. It's going to take God's grace to help you get over the hurdle. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's devote ourselves to being a disciple-making church where both teaching His Word and learning His Word are desired, longed for. Those are things we hunger and thirst for. To be a part of a loving and caring church where Christ is central in our relationships. And because that's so, Christ comes out in our conversations. Let's be a remembering church where we proclaim the Lord's death as well until He returns. And we look forward to that day that He returns. And let's be a praying church where talking with God is commonplace for all things. It's not out of line to just stop and pray. It's not out of line to just pull a brother off the side and pray for him. It's not out of line for a sister to come alongside another sister and pray for him. That's common. That ought to be what happens in the church. So, the power has been poured out. The power has been questioned. The power has been explained. And now, church, it's time to exercise that power that's been poured out from on high. And so may we, too, just like the church here we read about in Acts 2, may we, too, be about exercising the power from on high 
for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your word would spur us on to do the very things we've talked about this morning. Father, I pray that this church at Hope in Christ would be diligent to endure to the end, would be diligent to persevere in the things of God, would be diligent to exercise this power that's been poured out from on high. Oh Lord, you've given to us your Holy Spirit for a reason, for a purpose. And I pray that we would see that purpose from your word. And I pray that we would be diligent to walk by faith and not by sight. I pray that we would be diligent to find ways, look for opportunities that we might be able to share testimony and be a witness for the one whom we serve, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.